0: started a a university we have our church has helped to purchase a property that their seminary will be on and so he wants to pour his life uh there into building leaders with the el shaddai ministries throughout haiti so donnie will be here to preach i hope you'll come and i hope you'll invite somebody to come with you uh let me ask the children that will be going to their lesson if they'll come and pause by the piano and i'll have a prayer with you before you go okay let's uh let's pray to the lord together oh father we uh thank you that we have been exhorted even as we heard sung about just then that everything should praise you including us that everything that has breath and so now as we look into your word may it be to transform us that we might praise you more with our lives and with our lips and we pray in jesus name amen Uh, let's stand and prepare to sing the song we uh, learned a couple of weeks ago. It's the paraphrase of Psalm 62. Let's take a brief moment to greet those around us in the name of the Lord, then we'll sing together Psalm 62. We continue our study in the uh, epistle of 1 John, there almost to the end of the New Testament. 1 John, today we'll be looking at the last chapter, a few verses out of chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 13 of 1 John 5. Hear God's word. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there, and there is sin that does not lead to death. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you that you allow us this privilege now to gather without fear uh, to study your word and we recognize that you say faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God so we pray that you might keep your promise that your word would not return to you void without accomplishing what you intend that you might use it to change our hearts more into conformity to the image of Christ or even to open the eyes of those who might be in darkness here among us. And that you'd use your gospel to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A young man uh, courts a young woman and truly cares deeply for her. But he is afraid to tell her what he thinks. And he chooses not to tell her how much he cares for her. Over time, they move apart. She eventually marries another Man, and uh, this original fellow was heartbroken. Uh, She never knew how much he cared for. A person has a job in a store, and as an employee, that woman feels unappreciated and unneeded in the workplace, and so she quits. And later she's told that the manager viewed her as one of the most talented employees that that, uh, had ever been there. And the employee said, I had no idea. I know of a man, I'm acquainted with him, and he grew up in a small town in North Carolina. And he didn't come from the best home life, and he moved away, and his father died some years later. He went back after the funeral and walked around town and saw a lot of the people that had known him as a boy and they said he said everywhere he went they said do you have any idea how much your father loved you he talked about you all the time and he said i had no idea it's a total surprise to him we all have a longing for approval we we need some affirmation we want to hear special words like i am proud of you i accept you I'm glad you are in this family or I'm glad you're part of this team or in this workplace. We need you. Pat Morley, a businessman from Orlando who years ago wrote the book Man in the Mirror. He wrote, the need for approval is the unintended hidden motivator behind so much of what we do. Whether from our father, our mother, our spouse, our children, our peers, our friends, or our boss, The need for approval is a silent, inescapable influence upon our lives. We need the nod from our father, the embrace from our mother, the respect from our spouse, the appreciation from the boss for a job well done. In fact, he goes on to say, Nothing reduces us to loneliness and indignity faster than withheld approval. We want to know where we stand. Does God approve of you this morning? Do you, could you say, yes, God approves of me? Do you feel accepted and loved by him? Do you know where you stand with him? Or you say, I'm in a complete fog. I have no idea. Well, I think based on the letter of 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, God wants you and me to know where we stand with him. We're trained to believe it's often better to leave relationships undefined to keep people guessing, to uh, leave it a mystery, because if if we give them the assurance of a defined relationship that, yes, I'm committed to you, or you've got a place here permanently, then we think that will be followed up with a lax performance or poor performance, and they will take us for granted. It's not so with God. God wants you to know where you stand with him. He does not play games with us he does not manipulate us he wants us to know where we are and so for that reason this morning we will focus here on the purpose of the letter of 1 John which is found in this passage from chapter 5 and that's the biblical doctrine of assurance assurance verse 13 you've you've heard it almost every sermon as we've preached some of the highlights of 1 John and that is I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may have the confidence, that you may have the certainty. Now remember who John was, okay? I, I, I want you to remember this and what's the old saying that the, the price of knowledge is eternal review? So let me just remind you of some things I've said before, remind you that John was from a, a Jewish family. He lived out from Jerusalem in the countryside called Galilee. He and his father and his brother were commercial fishermen in the family business there at the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a very, very large lake. And John and his brother James became disciples of Christ. They, they left everything. They followed him. Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder, apparently called in that because of their tendency to explode. And John was transformed Uh, into someone who was strong, but he became gentle. He was straightforward, but he was also loving. And he was courageous, but he was humble. In fact, he was so transformed from the one who was angry and arrogant that when he writes his account of Jesus' life and message in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was an eyewitness to the miracles. He heard Jesus... Firsthand teach the parables. He heard him preach. He heard him confront the religious leaders. He was at the Last Supper. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was the first man to go to the empty tomb that first Easter morning. And he wrote this letter probably around 85 or 90 A.D. Later he wrote the Gospel of John. We think he died when he was about 100 years of age. He He was the only disciple that did not die a martyr's death or suicide like Judas had committed. So he's a lifetime. We have here a man who's finishing strong of a lifetime committed to Christ. He had remained faithful. He he wasn't a flash in the pan. And so as he writes this to believers, this letter is to believers. Some of the letters of the New Testament are addressed primarily to unbelievers. This one's to believers. And his desire is for those who have believed to know with certainty that they have eternal life. Let me tell you what assurance is not. Uh, and I have to define assurance because it's very easily misunderstood. It's, it's usually misunderstood it stood as arrogant presumption. Like Who do you think you are? You say you know for sure you're going to heaven. And I ran into that with the first person I ever witnessed to. In the eighth grade, uh, my hometown had a junior high ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. It was one of the few junior highs in the nation that had staff members assigned to it with Campus Crusade. And in the summertime, we would go to Rollins College. Some of you might have gone down there. Right outside of Orlando, uh, Campus Crusade would rent part of the campus, and they'd have hundreds of students there, high school students, for a conference. It lasted about a week. There'd be speakers in the evening and Christian speakers. And on one or two of those days, we uh, loaded up in buses and they took us over to Daytona Beach and dumped us out on the sand and handed us four spiritual law booklets and said, there they are, Go, go talk to people out there about Christ. Well, you're supposed to be paired up. I don't know what happened. I guess I ended up by myself. So here's this eighth grader walking along on Daytona Beach, trying not to get hit by the cars or the Harleys. And I see this guy drinking a Budweiser, uh, the way, you know, the old, the red and white can. You know, he's sitting over there on a lounge chair, and he's got his hat on, and he didn't look too fast. If he got mad, I thought I could outrun him at least at that time. And so I went over and I began to, uh, I said, "Look, I'm down here. We're a bunch of students. We're going around asking people if they'd like to take this little survey." And and they said, "Yeah, I'd be glad to." I mean. What do he have preoccupying? A can of beer and staring at the water, you know. So we sat down, and I sat down next to him and went through this. And, and uh, boy, he was just, he was agreeable and friendly. And, I mean, this is my first, this first time that anything like that ever come out of my mouth. And I, I was scared to death. And uh, we're, we're talking, and I come to the part in a little booklet, you know, so you'd like to know that you have eternal life. And that word, no, that's when everything went south. He said, nobody can know that. You cannot know. And I, I wasn't prepared. I said, well, you know, I just read what's written there. I mean, I said, well, you, you, he, well, it, it came out later, I realized his particular religious background would, is based on works. And therefore, you can't ever know if you have eternal life because you're always working toward it. And therefore, he, he, he had quite a grasp, at least he had worked that out in his mind. So I kind of scratched my head, and, you know, we, we parted ways, friendly, but I, I was puzzled why that was the main issue with him. It wasn't who Jesus was. It wasn't whether God existed. It wasn't whether sins can be forgiven. It was this whole issue of assurance, and I think he viewed it as uh, arrogant presumption. Presumption, Okay, it's also not, assurance is not wishful thinking. Uh, wishful thinking is often based just on our head knowledge and head knowledge alone can be very dangerous we have warnings in the bible in the book of james we are warned about demon faith in chapter two of james it says you believe that god is one that's good you do well the demons also believe and shudder but are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow that faith without works is useless so james is addressing wishful thinking as someone who says, Well, I believe, but it doesn't affect their life. And James writes back and says, Well, how are you? You're not any better off than the demons. They, they don't lack any knowledge about God, they believe certain things. It's also not wishful thinking based on being good or doing good things. Some people call the most terrifying words in the Bible the section out of Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus speaks about people who have false assurance. They had confidence they were going to heaven. They have assurance they're going to heaven. And yet he says to them, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, Many will say to me on that day. Not just one or two. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not... Then they give a grocery list of things they did. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And Jesus goes on and says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, there's a lot in that paragraph. But for the sake of time, I would just make the one obvious observation. It is possible to be lost, yet truly be convinced that you are saved. It is possible to be lost while convinced that you are saved. And that's what we have in in Matthew chapter 7. Self deception. So a person may have the assurance that, that he or she is in a right standing with God, even though he or she is not. A lost person may be convinced that they are headed to heaven. An unbeliever may be convinced that he is a believer. So, assurance is not arrogant presumption based on some deeds or performance or good works, thinking I'm earning my way to heaven. It's also not based on exclusive knowledge, knowledge alone, or good deeds. Well, if that is what assurance is not, then what is it? I like John Blanchard's definition. He says, the biblical doctrine of assurance is that a person who is born again, justified, and adopted into God's family may know that they are a child of God, freed from the guilt and penalty of sin and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. A person who is born again, justified, and adopted into God's family may know They are a child of God, freed from the guilt and penalty of sin and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. When theologians speak about assurance, they talk about two aspects. There's an objective side and there's a subjective side. There's a factual aspect to it and there's an experiential aspect to it. Things you know and things you feel. The objective side of assurance is that it's based on things outside of me, outside of myself. So it's more than just feelings or hopes or desires. It's convictions based on certainties. The conviction that Jesus really was the Son of God, that he really died on the cross in my place, that he really rose from the grave, and that he will come again to take me to be with him to live forever. And that my inheriting eternal life is strictly because of the fact that his perfect record is given to me, my sinful record is given to him on the cross. This mysterious transaction took place and now God sees me with the righteousness of Christ and he was punished for my sin. Now that is the objective part of it. That is the concrete facts of it. But the subjective aspect of assurance Involves the deep personal conviction by the Holy Spirit that my sins have been forgiven. That I have been adopted into God's family and that I belong to him forever. Let me give you a simpler example. Just last night, like yesterday afternoon, I stood here. This wasn't here and performed a wedding ceremony. And so as Will and Molly took their wedding vows before me and another pastor and all the friends and others that had gathered, friends and family, Uh, right then, they are married. The marriage license is signed. Uh, It's it's legal now in in the state. And so they've taken vows, covenant vows, (coughs) before God and witnesses. But if we could call them on the phone in a week or two and say, hey, you feel married today? Maybe so, maybe not. Are they married? Absolutely. Your feelings married? Look, you don't live a single life for X number of years and then marry, and immediately all your emotions line up. It doesn't work that way. I had a friend, he's, he's very funny, he's a counselor. Counselors can be hilarious. I don't know, they've got so much material to work with, I guess. But he, he told me he'd been married about two years. He said, when I wake up in the morning and look over and see a woman next to me, he said, I still, it jolts me. <laughs> I'm not going to go any further with that analogy, right? <laughs> but the point is, you can be married, but your emotions don't line up with that just immediately. It may take a while to so, say, okay, I've got, a, you know, I've got a spouse to think about, and I've got to consider this and make a decision about this, or, or where we're going, it's not just me going, there's two of us going now, and all, all that. Now, with assurance, we may know the facts about Christ. We may believe those and still lack that subjective sense that I really belong to God. Here are some biblical texts that talk about assurance. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 5, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has passed out of death to life. John 3:16 that we, we hear quoted so much, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life." As Paul was in the Philippi- in a Roman jail, as he wrote to the Philippians, and he pondered whether he would be executed or not, he said, "I'm torn between the two, whether he would be killed or whether he would be released from prison. I desire to depart. That is, he desired to die and be with Christ which is far better, but it's more necessary to you that I remain in the body. Are those words of someone who had any doubt what would happen to him after he died? None. That was assurance. That was a certainty that God had given him. And then this verse, these verses, 513. These things I have written to you who believe, so it's possible to believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know. It's possible to believe and still like that certainty. And so that's why 1 John was written. Well, how do we get assurance? God is the one who gives it. One theologian said, and I didn't put who, but I wrote down, assurance is a gift from God every bit as much as faith is. So it's not something we can work up. We have to pray for assurance. I have to pray for certainty that I belong to him. God gives it. But it has a basis. And I use the analogy in the inquirer's class of a stool with three legs. And uh, assurance is like a stool. And the first leg, they're not in order of importance, but one leg would be the promises of God. I've already mentioned those. That if you hear and believe, you will be saved. So just based on those promises. The second leg would be the changed life, changes that, that God brings. And those we've already looked at from First John, include obedience first john chapter 2 3 said by this we know that we have come to know him if he keep his commandments the one who says i've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him we're talking about their pattern of life there'll be a desire to obey him nowhere is it teaching perfection and sinlessness in this life but there will be a desire to follow him that was not there before you believed and there will be obedience There'll be love for other believers. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, The one who says he's in the light, in other words, the one who says, I I know God and yet hates his brothers in the darkness until now. We know, chapter 3 said, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Perfect love? No. Uh, Progress? Yes. Uh, We suddenly are alert to things we weren't before. We care about other believers that maybe we just it didn't matter before. Uh, chapter two says another indicator in the changed life is not loving the world. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's the world's way of thinking. It's the pattern of thinking that's just opposed to God. There's another indicator, there'll be care for others and generosity. First John 3 said, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? These are tangible characteristics, changes that God brings in the life of a believer, a person who believes that weren't there. These changes weren't there before. So the first leg of the stool is the promises of God. The second leg of the stool of assurance is the changed life. And the third is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, verse 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, my understanding of that, and this is not an easy thing to understand, and so my understanding is, though, I think the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer When we really question, do I really belong to God, I think he takes the promises of God, and I think he takes the changes that he's brought into our life, and it's like, in a sense, he puts that right in front of my face and says, who do you think brought these about? Chip, you never cared about confessing your sins before, and now you confess your sins. You never cared about what God thought about anything, and now you have a desire to do God's will. You didn't care about other people. You only cared about yourself and your immediate family, and now there's some semblance of care for other people. You found yourself right at home with the world. And now you feel like you're somewhat from another planet. That you're, a, you're one fish swimming upstream against a whole way of thought that's going another way. I think that's how he, how he does that. So what does assurance do? Well, or in other words, why do you need assurance? Well, it comforts us. It lets me know I belong to him. I don't begin each day wondering, well, does God accept me today or not? And assurance makes problems lighter. It makes long afflictions seem short, and it makes bitter afflictions sweet. Assurance gives us a zeal in evangelism. If you don't know where you stand with God... Why would you talk to anybody else about him? You couldn't talk with certainty. You know, you, you wouldn't have that because you wonder, I don't, well, you know, I don't really know if he accepts me. I don't know, he may not accept you either. So, yeah, I think it gives a zeal in evangelism. It gives confidence in prayer. That's what verse 14 is saying. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He's saying this on the heels of assurance. If you don't have assurance that you belong to God, that you have faith in Christ and you know that, your prayer life, there won't be much of a prayer life because you will not know whether God will hear your prayers. But that assurance also gives confidence. It gives confidence to know that access has been granted to God, that we can approach Him, that we don't need a human priest to do so on our behalf. It can give us boldness or openness or, or uh, be unintimidated in our prayers. And I would urge you there that the psalms should be our guide. They're filled with every kind of human emotion, from grief to anger to sorrow to disappointment to confession to repentance to joy. Confidence also involves knowing that God hears and answers. But it says in verse 14, we must pray according to his will. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15 states this assurance in prayer more generally if we know that God hears we know that just as certainly that we have at hand the answers to our request and gives an example of a sinning brother in verse 16 if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death and so forth so here's this brother Christian brother that I know is a fellow believer and he's headed down a path he's headed down a course of life it's not just a one-time sin I mean he's he is following a course of disobedience And we know it's not God's will for that to happen. That is not God's desire for that brother to continue down that. So I can pray, you and I can pray in confidence that this fellow believer who is practicing sin will repent. So that's what he means praying in confidence. I know it's not God's will for this person to continue down this path. And your prayers, your prayers for your sinning brother or sister in Christ may be the most effective means for that person coming back to repentance repenting of that course of action. So when we see our brother or sister in habitual sin, it is our responsibility to pray for them and to pray in confidence that God would change their hearts. Now, these things flow out of our own assurance. If I go into a Christian brother and say, look, I love you, and I've known you a long time, And I've observed this, and it's quite disturbing to me and a number of others. If I am going to do that, you better believe I better know I'm right with God. I better have assurance that I know God is my Father. Let me conclude. It's one thing to know about assurance. It's quite a different matter, actually, to have it. Our daughter, Julie, and her husband, Kenny adopted. Many of y'all met these little children. Uh, Some African-American twins, Uh, they were born last October. And they've been in a long process of adoption that culminated and was finalized last Monday. Or no, Friday, nine days ago, that Friday. And Barbara and I went with them and all their kids and Jay Strickland the attorney for covenant care here from our church, to the courthouse up in Monroe County, that's where they live, to see the last papers signed by the judge. Now here's little Eliana and little Jordan. And though they can't talk with words that you can understand yet, what if the day comes that they say, are you really, are you really, do I really belong in this family? Yeah, here are the papers. No one can take you away. You are ours. You belong to me. What if the next day they come back again and say, do I really belong in this family? Look here. Look at this sheet of paper. See that? See that stamp right there? See that seal? That's that's legal proof. You belong to us. No one can take you away. You know, you're ours. You're our children. If you grow up doubting that over and over and over, it's going to wreak havoc in your Christian life. But the certainty brings security. And then I can experience his love and grow in him and, and talk about him and, and pray to him in a way that I wouldn't otherwise. So how, how do we have assurance? How do we gain that? I've told you before, from the time I trusted in Christ and I had the facts, the objective part, it was probably seven years at least before I had certainty that I belonged to God. I've wrestled with this subject. I read 1 John more times than I, than I can even mention and I would waver, and I would waver. You know, yes, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Or I believe, or I don't know if I do believe. Or I, be- I don't see the signs that God's at work in my life. So these things I'd, I'd share with you, not, not just as academic. First, I would examine, urge you examine your own heart for genuine faith. And ask God that if you have false assurance, he will open your eyes to your true condition. Second, pray for assurance. If you have true faith, if you believe in the gospel, if you believe in what Christ did, then pray for the Lord to give you firm assurance that you do belong to him. Third, confess your sins. Confess your sins on a regular basis. And I would add this. If the Holy Spirit enables you to see and confess your sins, that's a strong evidence you belong to him. I don't know about you, but when I did not know Christ, I didn't really care about confessing sins. I don't even think I recognized any sins in my life. So confess your sins on a regular basis. And last of all, I'd urge you, meditate on the promises of God regarding eternal life. Read them over and over. I read something this past week in a a booklet on another subject, but it said most of us need... Not to listen to ourselves so much, but is to talk to ourselves. We do too much listening to ourselves, and we ought to be talking to ourselves. Talk to yourself with the promises of Scripture. Talk to yourself and say, look, Chip, look what John writes. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That's me, I believe, so that I may know that I have eternal life. So I'd urge you to meditate on those promises. If you have questions about more rudimentary things like how do we know that the Bible's true and why would we think that what jesus did 2,000 plus years ago applies to us right now i'd love to talk to you or john kinser the assistant pastor in fact after every service one of the pastors and at least one elder is available in our prayer room at the top of those steps behind me uh, to pray and if you have any questions like that we'd love to talk to you let me close our time of prayer father thank you for biblical assurance Thank you that you don't want us to live in limbo. Make clear the condition of our own hearts. As true believers, Father, give us confidence and assurance that spills over in how we pray and how we talk to others about you and how we make daily decisions. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.